Hello everybody, my name is Benjamin Russell. I'm happy to share with you the first chapter of my book, Coming of Age. The chapter is titled Prologue, The City of Barclay. Um, I typically hate prologues. I usually skip over them when I read them. Um, now that I'm in my <laughs> late 20s, I, uh, I actually do read the prologues now, um, but in the past I really would just skim over them or maybe read a couple sentences every paragraph or so. I just never really found them that important until I started writing my own book. And you know, the reason why I decided to make the prologue about the city itself is because I wanted to make the city a character all on its own. I wanted to have it establish the mood and the environment of which these characters I write about uh, live in and how it shapes their actions. And, you know, it gives greater understanding to why the novel is what it is. You know, it's basically a book about teenagers and, you know, drinking and having sex and doing drugs and getting in fights and using drugs and addiction and abuse and mental illness. It covers a lot of the things I think that we as a society don't really like to talk about when it comes to teenagers, you know, I, I like to think that most parents like to see, you know, their children, like, you know, uh, how they see kids on the Disney Channel, and I'm sure that a lot of kids want the same thing, you know, I, life is not always that hunky-dory, fucking, you know, happy-go-lucky shit, I really think that that's just, you know, it's, uh, it's fast food, and maybe my book is also fast food in a sense too and the, the uh, way that it does you know revolve around exploitative things like sex and drugs and violence but you know a lot of these come from my own personal experiences and the experiences of others that I grew up around and I just felt like you know the real reason for writing this book the real purpose was because I really didn't, didn't see anything like it, you know. I think it's a very edgy book. It covers a lot of topics that people probably aren't too comfortable talking about or reading about and thinking about. But the reality is, is these are things that people go through. And the reality is, is that towns like the town in my book are towns that exist. They're in every state. You know, you can probably find them in the best cities in the world, everywhere. There's always an underbelly of crime and violence and sex and all kinds of controversial things in every single city. I don't care where the fuck you were raised, this shit goes on, and someone's got to talk about it. And I, you know, for a while, I spent years trying to get someone else to tell my story for me. I reached out to publishers and people who, you know, they they read scripts. And I originally wrote the book as a screenplay. I rewrote it, God, fucking probably dozens and dozens of times. I mean, I spent over at least, at, at the very least, 10 years writing this book. At least 10 years. And you know, it, it's just, it's been a painstaking process, but also, ironically, also very uh, cathartic. It's, it's been a very good experience for me to actually be able to accomplish something like writing a novel that is over 400 pages long. I mean, there's a lot of people who want to do things, 
There's a lot of people who want to blame people for the reason they don't do things. And at the end of the day, you just, you gotta fucking do it. You have to take the initiative. You have to take the opportunity. You have to look at what you have available for you and make something of it. You know, and fuck it. You know, if people, if only four people read your book, if no one reads your book, but at least you got it out there, at least you did something with it. If no one else was willing to help you get your work out there, then at least you fucking did it. And that's what's important. And I'm probably going to curse a lot when I do my uh, commentaries before reading my chapters, but I just, this is who I am. I, I am who I am. I'm an honest person. I speak what's on my mind. And I, I can do that because I know I'm a good person. And it, it always comes from a place of love and it comes from a place of wanting people, you know, to maybe go through, you know, some some dangerous places as you read what these characters go through, but it always comes from a place of love. It comes from a place that I want you to understand, you know, this is what some people go through and if I can raise awareness for some of the shit that people go through in their lives and I can help people and I can get kids like myself, you know, when I was growing up to relate to what I'm writing about, you know, I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it for for love and I'm doing it for the the people who were like me when I was a kid, when I was a teenager growing up. Because I don't think that a lot of these things are addressed and if they are addressed, they're often done in pretty exploitative, you know, uh, unrealistic ways. So with that commentary said, Let's go ahead and dive into this prologue. I'll begin by reading my author's note. It has taken nearly 10 years to get this story published, albeit through my own devices. I, like many young writers, made the mistake thinking that my story would be the one all publishers and agents would want. From the responses I have received, it would appear there are no financial incentives for what this novel will tell you. Maybe one of the problems with making a deeply personal story is that the rejection hits you harder. Maybe the story is not worth telling at all. But I believe that any story that offers unbiased and honest examination of mental illness and the struggles teenagers go through, especially those who have been abused, is worth telling. I hope that this novel achieves enough success to prove to publishers and agents that stories about brave and strong young people who survive violence, drugs, and sexual abuse are valuable. I hope it proves that the pain I went through, partying, drinking, and abusing drugs to cope with my PTSD from being molested was worth it. While coming of age is fantasized, the research I did for this novel comes from a personal experience. I would like to thank my girlfriend, family, and friends for their incredible support and encouragement to get this novel out there. Without your help, I would not have been able to get this far. Prologue, The City of Barclay. Thick fir trees surrounded the moist landscape. Ferns the size of children grew out of the mulchy and muddy grounds. The cold waters from the Pacific Ocean splashed against the rocky beaches. The clouds were cotton candy colored as they floated in the light blue sky. Snow would coat the mountains in the winter and melt away during the summer, revealing a green haven of wild vegetation. Animals, including deer, squirrels, bears, and mountain lions, either frolicked or moved cautiously 
through the densely populated neighborhoods and equally dense woods. Barkley, a city in the Pacific Northwest of Washington State, was an unassuming place for trouble and violence. For those wise enough, Barkley was synonymous with the underworld. The suburban city was full of blue-collar workers and their children. Many supported their children with government assistance. The richest in town owned businesses, franchises, or had vacation homes near the ocean or by Lake Whatcom. It seemed as time kept going, the gap between the rich and the poor grew greater as the opportunities for the middle class grew more competitive. The children of the town suffered from the boredom that came from ironically living in a beautiful place. It was not like there were no fun activities to do, but skiing, snowboarding, biking, camping, and jet skiing all required money. If one was not interested in the recreational benefits of the town, then drugs, drinking, partying, and crime were the go-to pastimes. Prior to the arrival of colonizers, Barkley was populated by four Indian tribes. The natives of the Lummi, Nooksack, Samish, and Simamoa tribes controlled the lands. By the time the settlers had taken it, the land became a fishing and shipping hub through the 1850s to the 1920s. It was a place that was home to the hardened men who worked through tough but paying jobs. If you were not a fisherman, the timber industry was the second career choice for most. Despite the work being hard and potentially lethal, it was work nonetheless. The area had the allure of being far more beautiful than that of the East Coast or the Midwest. Gossip spread across the country of a new town near the sea that had several booming industries. Many with limited opportunities traveled there. To them, Barkley was the hope of providing for themselves and their families. The people who settled there had never seen such landscapes surrounded by endless fir trees, vegetation, or the ocean. The most they saw from nature were foothills and drylands that became freezing cold during the winter and unbearably hot through the summer. In Barkley, newcomers enjoyed the taste of fresh salmon and the sea life that fetched a good income on the market. Despite the snowy mountains that had to be crossed to get to Barkley, the moist, damp atmosphere was more favorable than what the Midwest had to offer. The journey to Barkley was hard and took lives, but the reward of making it there was worth it. As the industries and population grew, so did Barkley's range. For a short time, the city was divided into four towns, Barkley, Wacom, Fairhaven, and Seaholm. By 1905, all four towns were incorporated into the city of Barkley. In the beginning, Barkley was a thriving city with enough work to go around for everyone. The bay became a decently sized shipping hub with around-the-clock work. Men who came from nothing built shipping empires. Women who had barely two cents to rub together were able to provide for their children in newly built homes. The descendants of the first settlers followed in their father's footsteps and became skilled workers. For a period, Barkley became the sanctuary for those who came from nothing. As more people came, desperation followed. By the 1950s, there was little work to be found. Families that had been established in the town for dozens of years faced financial difficulty and hardship. The industries that were once thriving had plateaued. Instead of longshoremen and timber workers being the jobs of choice, traditional community roles such as doctors, lawyers, teachers, and police officers 
became the go-to gigs for sustainability, but these jobs were limited. Poor financial backgrounds also prevented many from furthering their education. The jobs that many came to the town for dozens of years ago bottomed out. Those fortunate enough for blue-collar work found themselves working paycheck to paycheck. Little investment went to infrastructure, even though the cost of living increased. Older homes became dilapidated. The businesses of skilled workers closed. And many turned to crime and drugs to cope. Barclay became a place no longer for opportunistic entrepreneurs and people looking to start anew. It was an expensive destination to settle once wealth had been attained. The upper class became composed of people who earned their living in other states and Canada. Many homes close to the ocean and off the lakes became vacation or retirement dwellings for the privileged and retirees. The blue-collar workers and lower classes were pushed to more rural areas and multi-family units. Tribal relations with the city were always shaky at best. Prior to the first settlers coming to the area, the Lummi, Nooksack, Samish, and Samoa tribes sustained themselves with the same resources the settlers exploited for their own financial gains. Through shady dealings, the natives were pushed to small, unfavorable areas. Those who did not comply were either at best imprisoned or at worst hanged. Small battles and skirmishes between the natives and the settlers resulted with casualties on both sides. As more settlers came to the land, the natives could no longer fight with them. Their defeat was assured. Now suppressed from the lands they once called home, many tribes suffered depression and alcoholism. Like the residents that followed, crime and substance abuse became a part of the natives' culture. Campfire stories and spooky tales told of an evil spirit brought on by the Indians for their mistreatment. The spirit described with a black, smoke-like body and a mischievous, evil smile, would plague the settlers and their future generations. It would enter into someone's life and destroy them from the inside out. When a settler drank himself to death or his wife had a breakdown, many would think the spirit was to blame. Logical thinkers thought the unfortunate events came from the rising financial difficulties. The open-minded were more skeptical. By the time the war on drugs was declared, Barclay had become a notorious border town ripe with drug-related crimes and abuse. In 1977, Western Washington University was established in Barclay to help clean up the town's reputation. Unfortunately, the university also became known for drug abuse. Heroin, in particular, became the common drug of choice. Its popularity was followed by numerous drug overdoses for young users, which was sometimes fatal. It did not take long for Barclay to have the eyes of the DEA looking at it. Biker games formed and infiltrated law enforcement, causing further damage to the reputation of the town. Entire graduating classes of police officers were discharged, arrested, or murdered because of corruption. A mayor also had a short-lived term after he was exposed for taking bribes. Sex trafficking played second to drug trafficking, but it had a grander impact. Families would come home to realize that their daughters and wives had gone missing. Many of them had either taken up lovers in crime syndicates or been forced into the sex trade. 
Those from lower classes were the most likely to fall prey to the influences of exploitative men. Even those higher up the food chain were not immune to the seduction of sex, drugs, and crime. The lifestyles of the rebellious and criminal were alluring and exciting. It only took the right place at the right time to lure someone into the underworld. There was always a right place at the right time in Barclay. Life did begin to settle, even as the city went through its long depression. As law enforcement improved and the federal government stepped in, the biker gangs and drug traffickers became quiet. Areas that were known for drug abuse and crime became homes for those higher up the socioeconomic ladder. With limited housing available, those with money bought up once avoided neighborhoods. The noise of crime died down and the seediness of the city's known atrocities went underground. It was silently acknowledged that these horrors were there, but they were rarely seen. If one went looking for trouble, it was expected they would find it, but only if they went looking. Sadly, one did not have to look far.